Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Lone Wolves Club. I'm your host, Nicole Porter, and I am so excited to dive into today's topic. I feel like it's going to be a really good one. It might also be a bit of a longer episode, so grab your favorite drink, grab a snack, and settle in. But before we jump in, I wanted to remind you where you can keep the conversation going after each episode airs. You can email me at lonewolvesclub.pod at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at lonewolvesclub.pod. And we now have a Facebook group too. So if you search Nicole Porter and then you look for the page Lone Wolves Club Podcast, you can become a member there and keep the conversation going on Facebook too, if that is your preferred social media outlet. All right, that is a quick intro. I got nothing else to really say. So let's dive into the heart of today's topic. So if you haven't watched Shiny Happy People on Amazon Prime Video, it is a fascinating snapshot into what many are nicknaming Fundy Christians. Fundy is short for fundamentalist Christianity. And if you don't know, fundamentalist Christians are a movement of Christians who hold fast to biblical teachings, but often border on an extremist view of their faith. They often reject modern-day trappings like social media and technology, but not as intensely as the Amish community. For example, a Fundy family may have a TV in their home, but it may not be connected to cable and only have a VHS player for videos that they deem appropriate to be watched. A Fundy family often rejects modern-day gender norms, They often abstain from sex until marriage, and they are often homeschooled, and the education there is more focused on biblical principles rather than core curriculum like math, science, literature, and so on. A clear picture of fundamental Christianity comes from the Duggar family, which is the main focus of the docuseries Shiny Happy People. Watching the first season of this series left me with a lot of thoughts, and the main thought that bothered me was, how do these people who claim to love God and read the Bible daily get Christianity so wrong? And they aren't the first group of people to famously love God, but be so against what Christianity actually stands for. If you really want to feel enraged, watch America's Most Hated Family by Louis Thoreau, which is a documentary about the Westboro Baptist family. You know, the family that will interrupt funerals for gay men and women, even those who have served in the military. So in today's episode, I want to unpack fundamentalism, the cult of Christian families, and explore how cognitive dissonance runs rampant in these circles of Christians. This is not going to be the most lighthearted episode, and it may leave you with a lot of feelings, so please check in with yourself throughout the episode, and if things are getting too heavy, take a break and come back later. All right, let's dive into the murky waters of Christian fundamentalism. So, what is fundamentalism? I gave some examples in the intro, but that was just a generalization and based on 
on what the Duggar family in particular modeled. But fundamentalism is a form of Protestantism that attempts to make a militant defense of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Fundamental Christians believe that everything in the Bible is literal, whereas more liberal, quote-unquote, denominations of Christianity argue that some books of the Bible, like Revelation, for example, are more allegorical or metaphorical. Or I personally believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, but not all of that divinely inspired language is literal. It can be poetic language, and, you know, words can mean two different things, right? So I believe in a more, you know, not like a literal interpretation of the Bible. I believe some things are literal, and I believe that some things are also maybe poetry, metaphors, allegory, etc., Anyway, speaking of revelation, fundamentalist Christians do not believe that people can hear from God directly or get personal revelations from God. They rely strictly on the Bible as their source of faith and do not believe that they can hear from God apart from what is written in the Bible. For example, many Christians like myself believe that God hears their prayers and has an active role in their lives. Fundamental Christians believe more that they are on earth to follow God's instructions left in the Bible, and they do not believe that God speaks to them personally. Instead, they glean their knowledge from the Bible that is passed down from the pastor who interprets the Bible, the husband who upholds biblical standards in the household, and the wives and children who follow the instructions that have been passed down from the pastor to the husband. Now, with this kind of hierarchy, you may think that this sounds rather cultish, and I think that is an interesting way of looking at funny families. In fact, in the Shiny Happy People docu-series, one person they interviewed who grew up in a funny family described the fathers of funny families as the cult leader of their family. And I don't think that's too far of a stretch to compare funding families to cults in some regard. For example, within the hierarchy that I described above, there is a lot of what is called information control. Dr. Stephen Hassan is the leading expert on cults and cult behavior in America, and he broke down the way cults control information into what is now known as the BITE model, B-I-T-E. And that is an acronym that stands for behavioral control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. With the BITE model, he explains how cult leaders exact control over their members in each of those four areas. For example, behavior control in a cult is often linked to punishment. In many fundy families, we see an extreme view of discipline and punishment when it comes to children and even women. What broke my heart in watching this docuseries was how one child who grew up in a fundy family explained that his mother beat him for over an hour in the church bathroom because he wasn't behaving during the church service. And her argument for beating him for so long was to, quote, break his will, unquote. 
A lot of Fundy families believe that you had to break a child's stubborn will so that they would grow up meek and subservient to you. One could argue that this is a prime example of behavior control. If you do not behave in a way that lines up with the beliefs or expectations of the family, you will be punished. And often punishment was extreme, like the story I just shared. Another very common theme in Fundy families is information control. Like the hierarchy I mentioned above, any kind of knowledge or information about God, the Bible, Christianity, etc. comes from the pastor, and husbands would be expected to implement the teachings of the pastor in their family. So, for example, if a pastor shared that you needed to break your child's stubborn will by extreme punishment, you would go home and do just that. And you would not be exposed to any other books, resources, TV shows, radio shows, etc. that would suggest that perhaps beating your child for over an hour in the church bathroom is not the proper way to discipline them. You would not read, seek out, or take in any other information apart from what your pastor was preaching because you believe that your pastor interprets the Bible accurately. But if your pastor found a way, as many do, to spin the teachings of the Bible to fit their worldview, even still you would accept their teaching as valid and true because you don't know any different. You're not comparing their sermons to any other outsider information. So information control can play out like this. Your husband comes home from a church sermon about how children should obey their parents blindly. Of course, they won't say blindly, but that's what they mean. So they beat their kid when they misbehave, and you as the wife are supposed to trust the husband, trust that they heard correctly from the pastor who interpreted the Bible correctly, and so you stand by your husband when they punish your children. You do not think for yourself and ask if this is the right way to do things, because your access to information has been controlled through this hierarchy. You only get information from what your husband shares from the service on Sunday. You only read books that your husband has also read and books that your pastor has probably written himself. You only watch sermons from your church and nothing else that might expose you to a different interpretation of the Bible. I won't go on with the other aspects of the bite model and how they are reflected in funding families, but you can only imagine how thought control and emotion control are linked to the two methods of control that I did unpack. Also on this topic of funding families and how they are similar to cults, I would argue that a big similarity between the two is isolation. Cults often withdrawn to a compound usually in a rural part of the town, city, you know, whatever, to all be together. Fundy families often also withdraw by not having traditional nine-to-five jobs in the corporate world. For example, the wife is usually a housewife, and the husband is usually some kind of factory worker, like in a steel mill or somewhere like that. This allows them to keep their social circle very small. And usually they only interact with families who share the same beliefs as them, as Fundy families are very concerned with separating themselves from the non-believers. Again, 
They tend to be militant about sticking to their beliefs, so they tend to not want any outside influence. So I didn't want this episode to be dedicated to bashing Fundy families, but I did want to use the cult-like behaviors of Fundy families as a springboard to what I think is an important conversation. And that is how cognitive dissonance runs rampant in these circles. For those who aren't familiar with this phrase, cognitive dissonance is the discomfort a person feels when their behavior does not align with their values or beliefs. For example, Joshua Duggar, the eldest brother of the Duggar family, was convicted and sent to jail for molesting two of his sisters, five other underage girls within their circle of friends, and also having seriously disturbing child pornography on his computer. What I found really eerie was when they showed Joshua's mugshot because he looked like he had no remorse, and he even smiled in the photo. One could argue that smiling is just a normal reflex to having a photo taken, but it was eerie to me because it felt like he had no realization of the gravity of what he did. And I think he probably suppressed that feeling of cognitive dissonance, that uncomfortability of realizing that the beliefs his family held to were not ones he actually followed. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say that molesting your sisters or women in general is okay. But I don't think Joshua is entirely at fault because the way his crimes were covered up did not help him. In the docuseries, when Joshua confessed to his family what he did to his sisters and other children, he was looking to turn himself in. However, the father of the Duggar clan took him instead to the sheriff's office where they spoke with a family friend who worked there and basically gave him a stern warning and let him go. Many studies show that sex offenders and pedophiles are repeat offenders unless they seek help and get treatment and are also removed from anyone they could abuse. And that was the case with Joshua. He continued his abuse by getting into child pornography and was unfaithful in his marriage. Not that that last part is a crime, but it certainly paints a picture of a young man who was struggling with his sexuality and possible sex addiction to the point where it overflowed into criminal and immoral behavior. Joshua's crimes were covered up for many years, with Joshua first being sent away to a commune, basically, where he was in solitary confinement all day, only let out to do manual labor and attend church services. This was a troubled youth program run by Bill Gother, who was a big name in the Fundy community. This not only shows the cognitive dissonance of Joshua, but of his parents, who in interviews about this scandal did not ever mention how Joshua's action did not line up with their faith. They never acknowledged that they raised Joshua to be a good, godly man and how good, godly men do not abuse women. Instead, they made excuses and persisted in the notion that he was a good boy who had just made some mistakes. I think this points to a deeper level of cognitive dissonance in Fundy families because many have that notion that their intentions are good, so how can the outcome be bad? 
for example, they raised good godly children who know better than to abuse and molest others. But when it actually happens, they cannot wrap their mind around the fact that their good intentions do not always lead to good outcomes. You can base your child to share in whatever beliefs you value and live by whatever standards you live by. But as they grow up and begin to think for themselves, they may go down a different path than you expect. And I think this is a dangerous pitfall because many fundy families and even non-fundy families share in this belief that because the intentions were good, if it led to a bad, out- if it led to a bad outcome, then someone else must be at fault. And sadly, the people who are often made to be at fault in situations like this are the victims. I remember watching two sisters who were abused speak out, two of Joshua's sisters, rather, and it seemed like they also did not understand the gravity of what had happened to them. They knew it was wrong and immoral, but they did not have the self-respect at the time to realize that no man should treat them like that and that their brother should have been raised to respect them and see them as people of value, not subservient to them like women in funding families are often raised to be. And again, at no point did it seem like the parents took any responsibility for what happened and admitted that they needed to keep a closer eye on what was happening amongst their children. It's to be expected when you have a family that large, you know, you can't keep an eye on everyone all the time, especially between all the cooking, cleaning, etc. And it seems like in these Fundy families, the children are left alone with each other a lot. In the docuseries, it broke down how the Duggar family system worked, that the older children were expected to take care of the younger ones. In one scene, it showed a tree branching out from Jill, the fourth eldest daughter, and underneath her photo, there were photos of other four children who were her buddies. Michelle Duggar, the mother of the Duggar children, explained that once a baby was weaned, which is usually when the child is six months old to a year, depending on the family, of course, it was given to another child whose turn it was to have a buddy. So as the family grew, the older children were given more and more buddies. And in Jill's case, she once had four children under her care at one point in time. In this kind of system where the children are expected to parent each other and therefore end up spending a lot of time alone with one another, it isn't a surprise that abuse can happen and go unnoticed for a long time. Parents may think that the children are quietly playing together or taking a nap together or tucked into bed all safe and sound without realizing what else can be happening in those moments away from watchful eyes. And I think that many Fundy families take the whole, if my intentions were good, how can the outcome be bad thing way too far when it comes to their attitude towards non-believers or even Christians outside of their denomination. Like I mentioned before, Fundy families tend to isolate and keep to themselves to avoid sinful or basically outside influences. I think this leaves people in this community without one fully developed social skills because associating with people that are just like you does not challenge you in any way. And two, a very judgmental attitude towards others because they think that they should set the standard for morality, that they should be the moral police of the world because they are holding fast to every biblical principle and their way is right. Again, it's easy to think like that when you are not exposed to other points of view. 
This is the only way I can explain why Christians in these circles claim to love God, read the Bible daily, but still get Christianity so wrong. It's easy to love your neighbor when your neighbor is just like you. Jesus himself even warned about this in the Bible. He said in Luke chapter 6, verse 32, that if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. I think to people in funding communities, they read a verse like that and think of loving their neighbor as loving someone who is a little different from them. Like maybe the family down the road where the daughters wear pants instead of skirts or dresses. I know that sounds extreme, but in shiny, happy people, there was a moment where all of the children were gathered around watching this sermon on TV. One of the daughters was holding her hand over the TV, partially covering a woman who was speaking. An aunt walked by and asked, what was she doing? And she said, covering the pastor's wife's eye traps for the boys. Eye traps was their code word for any kind of immodesty, like slightly exposed shoulders, which was probably what was going on with the pastor's wife. So you can see that if they so harshly judge others in their own community, to them, loving their neighbor can be written off as loving anyone that is slightly different from them. Forget loving someone who is from a different denomination of Christianity or not even a Christian. This is why I wanted to make this episode and share my thoughts because as a Christian myself, I try to truly love my neighbor as myself. I'm not perfect at it, of course, because I am an imperfect human, but I try to love those who are different from me. Throughout my life, I've had friends of many different ethnicities, nationalities, religions, sexualities, and walks of life. I think the beauty of living in today's society is that through travel or through social media, we can connect with others who are different from us. You know, when we all get to heaven, we are going to be surprised at how many people there are not going to look just like us. The Bible says that people from every tribe and tongue will worship together. Just a side note, but I think a lot of people forget that part of the Bible. Anyway, <laughs> I have shared so many thoughts on this topic, and I could go on and on. But I have some things I want to leave you with as this episode comes to a close. First, if you were raised or are still a part of a fundamentalist family, I want to apologize if I came across as harsh or critical. These were just my opinions from the outside looking in, but I do know a few people who grew up in this kind of family, and I have seen how it has impacted them for good in some ways and has also left a mark in other ways. And I can't help being critical of something that is so against what I believe to be the true message of Christianity. If you were raised in a family similar to the Duggars, I want to say, if no one else has said it, that I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you felt neglected in such a huge family, that no one really saw you or noticed you or attuned to your needs because there were so many other people to pay attention to. I'm sorry if you felt or still feel like the odd one out when you grew up and entered more of the real world because there were cultural references you didn't understand, movies you weren't allowed to see, 
and social media that you were not allowed to have. I am also sorry if you experienced any kind of abuse, be it emotional, physical, mental, or sexual. I am sorry if it wasn't taken seriously or if you were even blamed for it. You were a victim and you should have been believed. You should have been taken seriously. You deserved and always deserve better. And know that there is help in the form of therapy or support groups, which I will list after this episode airs. Also, if you grew up in a home like this, I'm going to link some of Dr. Hassan's content because whether you feel like you grew up in a cult-like environment or not, his content is helpful for anyone who felt like they grew up isolated from the rest of society. He has a lot of information about what he calls deprogramming, which is the process ex-cult members go through when they are adjusting to society and learning to think for themselves again. Lastly, if you are like me and you are left feeling helpless, knowing that there are many people still in situations like this today, I would encourage you to pray for them. Seriously, because there is no arguing with people like this. I know firsthand that you cannot change people's minds when they are so indoctrinated into their beliefs. They have to break free from that way of thinking on their own. But you can take your righteous anger and frustration to God and pray for those who are not seeing him clearly, because he wants to be seen clearly, and wants even those who have strayed away from his teachings. Although Jesus rebuked and admonished the Pharisees, he never condemned them to hell or turned his back on them. And you can also stand up as an example of what Christianity really is, which is what Jesus said when his disciples asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Continue to meet everyone you can with love and love those that are different from you, that are difficult to be loved, because they are the ones who need it the most. Like Jesus said, he did not come to heal those who are well, but those who are sick. And we are to follow his example and embrace those that need it the most. And that may just be people who look like shiny and happy on the outside, but are empty on the inside. Thank you so much for listening. And please continue this conversation with me after this episode airs, because I think it is a very important one. Just a reminder that you can follow me on Instagram at lonewolvesclub.pod and email me at lonewolvesclub.pod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear any thoughts or feedback on today's episode, especially since it was a bit of a heavier and more research-heavy topic. All right. This has been the Lone Wolves Club podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Porter. Until next time.